Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. It is my great privilege from a new studio here in Jerusalem. This is the Pardes Parsha podcast. Even though we're not talking about Parsha, we're talking about Pesach, which is also a P, so that I think is just as good. And I am privileged to be here with my friend, colleague, and teacher, Rabbi Dr. Daniel Reifman, who, although he suffered many travails, like the Jews in the desert, in arriving here today, he has got a smile on his face, and he is eager to share some Torah with us. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Rabbi Hirschfeld. Nice to be here. You hear the excitement in his voice, folks? It's electric in here. Okay, so we're talking about Pesach, and I previewed Rabbi Reifman's uh, topic a little bit. And from what I understand, you'd like to focus in on really the obvious tension that many of us who might read Shmot, right? And notice that the holiday of Pesach, the center of it, Chag HaPesach, is the Paschal sacrifice. There's no mention of a Seder in the Chumash. And obviously, when we read the Chumash and then we go to our Seder and use a Haggadah, we know something very significant has happened. And I'm curious to hear as our jumping off point, how is that significant for you? So if you look in the Chumash and talk about what Pesach means, and even if you look in the Mishnah and think about what Pesach means, Pesach is really all about the Korban Pesach, the Pesach sacrifice. In Masechet Psachim, a full five chapters go towards the ritual of offering and then cooking and then eating the Korban Pesach. Literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews descended on Jerusalem every year for Pesach in order to offer their Korban Pesach. And Jerusalem was one big barbecue. That sounds great, by the way. (laughs) A curious question as to what we would do nowadays is what would vegetarians do on Pesach? But not our topic for today. This is what Jews did. And we actually have historical testimony from late Second Temple sources about the massive throngs of people who would descend on Jerusalem for Pesach. So if I'm understanding correctly, the center of this whole holiday that people would talk about and focus on and learn about was this Paschal sacrifice, the Korban Pesach. And what you're describing basically is that since the temple is destroyed, perhaps, this is the equivalent of going into Sukkot without a sukkah. Essentially. Essentially, the Pesach in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple radically, radically changed. And aside from all of the other, the deep religious trauma the destruction of the temple had in so many other ways, Pesach is a particularly resonant moment during the year when the loss of the temple is felt acutely. 
again, just to go back to appreciate how central Korban Pesach was in the era when we had sacrifices. If you miss the Korban Pesach for some reason, people get sick, people have all sorts of things that keep them from coming to Jerusalem, just at the drop of a hat. There was a makeup date. This is what we call Pesach Sheni. And that starts already from the very first Pesach that the Jews celebrate on the first anniversary of the Exodus from Egypt in the desert. There are some people who are ritually impure. They can't come to offer the Korban Pesach. And God says, no problem. There's a makeup date one month later. So there's no makeup date for Yom Kippur. There's no makeup date for Rosh Hashanah. And yet the Paschal sacrifice, not even the rest of the festival, just the Paschal sacrifice. Just the Pesach sacrifice. Was seen as so central, there's a makeup date. And so now you can't even really understand, you can't even essentially be part of the Jewish people without the experience of Rafa and Karim Pesach. And if somebody didn't have a chance to do it, they'd be like, what, I missed out this year? So now walk me through this. Today, the entire Seder that I do at home, the Korban Pesach makes its appearance as a cooked chicken wing or a roasted shank bone that sits on my Seder plate, is not picked up. It gets one paragraph of mention, and then it disappears entirely. Matzah, maror, wine, we love those, we use those, we spend a lot of money on some of those things, and yet the, the, the Paschal sacrifice, even the symbol, seems to be missing. So walk us through what happened and how did this adaptation take place that you and I, and even the guy in the control room, his name is Zev, by the way, even Zev in the control room isn't probably going to feel the absence of this apparently incredibly central ritual. So to really understand what happens to Pesach, you have to go back to the first generations after the destruction of the temple, and maybe even more tellingly to the generation of the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which was really the Jews' last hope at rebuilding the temple. So we're looking at like 130, 140 CE. Approximately. What did the rabbis do back then? How did they grapple with this gaping hole in the middle of the Jewish calendar? So we have a very interesting story that we're all familiar with because we all read it every year in the Haggadah. And this is the story of the all-night Seder that happens at the beginning of the section of the Haggadah where we tell the story of Pesach. Before we actually get to the story, we tell stories about telling stories. And that's where this story features. I thought that was just there to make it longer so you'd be even hungrier by the time the meal arrived and people had more time to kvetch. That's another reason. That's another reason. It's also there so that the kids can get all of their different Torah out of the way at the beginning. So when you get to the actual Pesach Seder, nobody has any different Torah left and you can just race through it. You're completely disinterested in the main part. Got it. So here's the story. The Haggadah says, and even if we were all sages, all discerning, all elders, all knowledgeable about the Torah, it would be a commandment upon us to tell the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And anyone who expands in the telling of the story of the Exodus from Egypt, behold, he is praiseworthy. Okay, so far so good. It's encouraging me not to rush through, but rather to really take my time and tell this story thoroughly. Got it. How much time should you take? It happened once on Passover that Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Tarfon were reclining in Bnei Brak, and were telling the story of the Exodus from Egypt that whole night, until their students came and said to them, our teachers, the time for the morning Shema has arrived. So this is the rabbinic dream team. This I don't even know what our modern-day equivalent would be, but maybe it would have been like Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach and Rav Adya Yosef, and who knows who else, all having Seder together. That's what's being described here. This is the rabbinic leadership of the Jewish people at this time. Yeah, they're in Bnei Brak, which indicates they're being hosted by Rabbi Akiva, who lived in Bnei Brak. 
And they're sitting and telling the story and they're talking and talking and talking and talking. And it's pretty clear from the story they don't even realize how much they're talking because when daybreak comes, their students come and tell them, hey, it's time for the morning prayers. It's not unusual for rabbis not to realize how long they're talking, by the way, but go ahead. Well, this is why we have students, right? Because who needs students aside to tell us when to stop? Right, exactly. Essentially what happens, the telling of the story features so prominently and so centrally here that we understand that the rabbis re-centered the Pesach Seder not on the ritual of the Pesach sacrifice, the Korban Pesach, but rather on the retelling of the story, on Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, the retelling of the story of the Exodus. And not only retelling, but the idea of darshaning, of expanding on it, expounding on it, surfacing details, looking for complexity. It became, it sounds like it became, they replaced the sacrifice with a shiur or with a long chavruta or an ongoing learning process. There's even a kind of wordplay, of course, Midrash loves Midrash is all about wordplay that splits the word Pesach into Pesach, the mouth speaks. And essentially, this becomes Pesach for us, the telling of the story, the expounding on the story. And this is where we first see the notion that the story of the Pesach resonates and reverberates and really becomes about much more than just the Exodus. It becomes about a model of Jewish history and a model of our relationship with God. So I have a couple follow-ups. First of all, I know because I cheated and looked at your source sheet beforehand, not all rabbis were on board with this right away, it seems. You're going to tell us about that. And number two, we have to follow up at some point a little bit with, was it successful? Was this transition successful? Do we feel we're still missing something? But let's go back to the first one. Apparently, not all rabbis gave up on sacrifices even after the temple was destroyed. Okay, so we sense that there's a bit of a tension here, or a bit of a difference in how to reprocess Pesach or repackage Pesach in the post-Temple era. Analysis is from an article by Rabbi Huda Zoldan that I read, who contrasts the story from the Haggadah with another story in the Tosefta in Pesachim. Once Rabbi Gamliel and the elders were reclining in the house of Baitus ben Zunin in Lod, and they were occupied in studying the laws of the Passover all that night until the cock crowed. They lifted the table, readied themselves, and went to the house of study. So just to notice, they're occupied, as good rabbis should be, right, with the laws and not with the telling of the story. And I believe Rabbi Gamliel did not appear. He was not invited to B'nai Brak. He is having Seder at the five-star hotel in Lud with his colleagues. Okay. First of all, Baitus ben Zunin is an interesting figure who appears a number of other times. He's one of the few non-rabbinic figures who appears multiple times in the Mishnah. Must have been a donor. I think he was certainly a wealthy individual. Lod was then a great center, not only of learning, but also of commerce, and therefore probably a fairly cosmopolitan area, as opposed to B'nai Brak, which was a bit of a backwater. Some uh, would Reb- say still might be, but we're not going to get political on this podcast. Rabbi Gamliel is the same generation as all of the other scholars, and therefore his absence at the other Seder is telling, and his presence at this Seder is even more telling. And of course, he too seems to feel a need to fill the void of Pesach with some sort of talk. But the talking, the discourse at the Seder table is not about the story, it's about the laws. Meaning, whereas perhaps the first Seder you mentioned, they're doing what I guess you would call Midrash Agadah, perhaps, exploring the story, how it happened, what the plagues looked like. And we have some of that in the Haggadah itself. There were really 10, there were really 50. And you're saying Roman Gamliel Seder, they may in fact have been discussing the actual laws. How is the sacrifice offered? What happens if you do this incorrectly? How much of the sacrificial meat do you have to eat? Can you eat it when you're hungry? Do you have to eat it when you're full? A true Shulchan Pesach. 
Right. So we can ask our listeners maybe to vote afterwards. We can have an online poll as to which city they would rather be at, the one with the story or one with the laws. I think it depends on the menu, but we can leave that for our listeners to write in. What this indicates is they're really not ready to let go of the ritual. The preservation of halakha and the growth of halachic literature and halakha as a way of Jewish life is another way of holding on to Jewish civilization in the period of the Beit HaMikdash, of the temple. The fact that we continue to obsess, to discuss, to study, to immerse ourselves in the intricacies of Jewish law and that Jewish law frames our lives and really shapes the way we go about our lives on a day-to-day basis is another way of holding on to tradition and perpetuating tradition as something that continues to be meaningful for us. So I just want to catch us up where we are. You're saying there were really, there were two models. What was going to be at the center of what Pesach was going to be about? We're going to put the story at the center or the practice and the law at the center, even though obviously I'm sure both groups had elements of both. But what was going to be perceived as the central focus in the absence of korban, in the absence of temple, in the absence of sacrifice? And I heard you mention one time that there was actually a third model happening out there, that maybe there were some folks who were actually still offering the sacrifices. Okay, so in terms of just these two sedarim that we've just read about, it's clear one of them puts narrative, the telling of the story at the center, and Rabbi Gamliel Seder puts the laws at the center. So here's an interesting question. Are they discussing the laws and not actually doing them? Doesn't that feel a little pointless, a little impotent? You say there's a third model, but it's actually suggested in other sources that Bergam Liel himself was not just discussing the laws of the Korban Pesach. It wasn't just that he had already let go of the of the actual Korban Pesach and was just discussing it in a theoretical way, that he himself was actually maybe still bringing the Pesach sacrifice even after the destruction of the temple. We know, of course, the Jews offered the Pesach sacrifice before the temple was built, and now maybe he's continuing to bring it even after the temple has been destroyed. Meaning in theory, he has a Kohen go up to the Temple Mount, even in the absence of an altar, perhaps, which we know there's halachic debate and ritual purity that can be overcome. But basically, in theory, he's bringing that sacrifice. He's slaughtering that little lamb up there, and he's bringing it back, and he's roasting it the way he should, and he's in Jerusalem the way he should, and he's ritually pure the way he should. And so this is very mind-blowing. At his Seder, He's not just speaking theoretically, like we would say a Lamdan, like a Rosh Hashiva is speaking about tractate Sachim. He's actually instructing people, when you eat this, you have to make sure your hands are like this and you're seated like this and make sure you don't walk out of the room and go into somebody else's house or interrupt. He's actually giving a practical discourse on how to fulfill this mitzvah. Yeah, and again, there's no indication of where the time frame is here. I'm pretty sure there are historical sources that talk about the Jews going up to the Temple Mount even after the Temple was destroyed, before, of course, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion when the Romans raised the city of Jerusalem. So we don't have a sense of the time frame here. Roman Gamliel is living around that time before and I think the, in the aftermath of the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. But just one interesting story, okay? It's not just that we see Roman Gamliel talking about the Pesach Seder. We actually have a story in the Mishnah where it seems that he's really offering it. In the Mishnah in Pesachim, it talks about how to roast the Korban Pesach, and it says, one may not roast the Pesach sacrifice on a metal spit or on a metal grill. And the reason for that is it has to be roasted by direct fire heat. You have to roast it on a wooden spit over the fire. However, Rabbi Tzadok said there was an incident with Rabbi Gamliel who said to his slave Tavi, go and roast the Pesach lamb for us on a grill. So he actually disagreed with that point. 
And not only did he disagree with it, he actually told his servant, Tavi, who is his faithful servant and features another figure who features in many Mishnahic stories, to go roast it on a grill, which he thought was the proper way it should be roasted. And as opposed to, as mentioned, many scholars assume he's speaking about some kind of replacement, or maybe it's an earlier story, although it couldn't be if it's Tavi's there. Maybe it's an early Rabban Gamliel when the temple still stood. You're saying it's quite possible this was a real live debate because for him, they're still roasting the Passover. Korban, Passover yeah, and sacrifice. That, and that's not my contention. That's a compelling reading of the source. But Rabbi Yehuda Zoldan, who I mentioned earlier, is the one who suggests that interpretation. Wow. So I feel compelled then to come back to the question. It seems like the telling of the story won out. The Haggadah. Okay. <laughs> and I'm curious to know why you think that happened. Why, instead of holding on to some kind of sacrifice or a pseudo-sacrifice, whatever it might be, whatever the rabbis could have come up with, Instead of a Korban Pesach, even a theoretical one that's talked about, we make telling of the story at the center. It's a barely bigger question in terms of the areas of Jewish practice and Jewish law that waned in the generations after the destruction of the temple. For example, the long section of the Mishnah talks about the laws of ritual purity. Well, we don't practice the laws of ritual purity anymore. It's clear that the Jews were doing it in the generations after the destruction of the temple. But at a certain point, it seems they kind of give up that because they no longer have uh, sacrifices, they no longer have a need to preserve ritual purity in the same way. And therefore, that area of law becomes entirely theoretical. And clearly, that happens with sacrifices, too. If it's true that this sacrifice is perpetuated even after the destruction of the temple, we understand that maybe that's not so sustainable. And therefore, the telling of the story becomes the central element of the Korban Pesach, just as Judaism is changed in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple in many other ways. Do you think it's also possible, just to add on, that the way the story is constructed, and I'm thinking of Rabbi Akiva, and the way he has the blessing of Geula, of redemption, at the end of the telling of the story, that this story is no longer about what happened in Egypt or leaving Egypt, but the story has now become a meta story that we're supposed to tell. And that the Korban, the Paschal sacrifice, it evokes Egypt. It evokes the blood in Egypt and the plague of the firstborn. And not only focusing on the narrative actually perhaps shifts the message of the story that we're meant to hear. What do you think of that theory? I like that a lot. When you say the story is about redemption, I think you're probably thinking of the ending of the story where they're sitting and talking for so long and the students say, it's daybreak and it's time to say the Shema. The telling of the story has its own effect, essentially. Not only is it about the past, but unbeknownst to the rabbis who are sitting there telling the story, they end up bringing the redemption in some metaphorical sense when morning comes. So if nighttime is the exile, the message is if you stay with this story and you stay with the study of this story, you will make it through the night and you will actually be there to see the morning and you'll make it to the other side and witness redemption. Right. And for Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues, that was an enormously powerful message in one of the darkest times in Jewish history. You know, just a generation and a half after the destruction of the temple, the Romans quashed the Bar Kokhba revolt and in a very bloody and very brutal way. And that was really, some rabbis felt, maybe the end of the Jewish people's relationship with God. So the Pesach Seder is far more than just talking. It's not more. It's much more than an origin story. Marvel Comics should forgive me. And it's much more even remembering or reliving the miracles of the past. 
it is meant to tell you, if I understand you correctly, that the gula, the redemption that happened then, was the beginning. We're somewhere in the middle, but there is a gula at the end that's still going to come. So it's interesting now that you mentioned the end, because the story of how we preserve, how we retool the Pesach Seder for the post-Temple era has one more twist. And that comes at the very end of the section of Magid, where Rabbi Gamliel shows up again, and he says as follows. Rabbi Gamliel would say, anyone who did not say these three matters on Passover has not fulfilled his obligation. The Passover offering, matzah, and bitter herbs. Ah, uh, the Passover offering makes its way back. Okay. So notice, Rabbi Gamliel says, when you have Passover Seder, you need to have the props on the table. What are the props of the Pesach Seder? The matzah, we know. The marah, we know. He doesn't mention the wine. Or the egg. But he does mention the Pesach, maybe another indication that he was actually offering the Pesach. Nowadays, when we say this passage, we point to the substitute that we have, which is a shank bone or a, a, chicken, wing. a chicken wing. In my house, it was always chicken neck. And when we mention them, we not only have to mention them and point to them and say, look, look, there are the props. We have to link the props to the story. We have to explain why we have the props there. And in each prop, the prop symbolizes some element of the story. The Pesach symbolizes the redemption that God takes us out of Egypt, that he saves us from the plagues and from slavery and takes us out of Egypt. The matzah represents that it was done in haste, that we didn't even have time to bake the bread. And the maror is a commemoration of the bitterness of the slavery itself. And therefore, what we have at the end of the Seder is really a fusion of these two elements, on the one hand, ritual, and on the other hand, narrative. This, I think, is a critical point that we need to think about, even though it's true, the narrative wins out, ultimately. Our Seder is very narrative-focused. The Korban, the actual practice of the Korban Pesach, if indeed it was done after the destruction of the Temple, wanes fairly quickly. But we haven't given up on ritual totally. In other words, narrative is critical, but narrative divested of any kind of ritual, any kind of order, Seder means order after all, any kind of regular and regulated action, the story also ends, will fall by the wayside. You forget the story. So really what you're saying is Lod and B'nai Brak met somewhere in the middle at least theoretically, that we combine story with action, with rituals, with symbols, and together they become this central moment of building community and peoplehood all at the same time. And that's what our Seder is. Our Seder is really about ritual. We do the same things. We read the same text. We have the same foods year after year after year. And we tell the story around those props. But of course, the story is always changing and shifting. The parameters and the outline is basically the same. But every year we see new meaning and new resonances and draw out new implications from the texts that we read. The story is constantly evolving, but because it's always rooted to the ritual, it is able to be perpetuated in an honest and truthful way. And anchored in a particular text, if you will, even yeah. though it's short. So there are two takeaways that come from this. First of all, this idea that the Seder then becomes like this microcosm of Jewish life in general. Story and ritual and doing it together is the way that we maintain this identity and also this mission of heading towards redemption and gula and belief that the world maybe even is headed towards redemption and gula. That's number one. But number two, 
What you describe raises the question, which I know many people have thought about in the 20th century, both because of the Shoah of the Holocaust and the state of Israel being born. Because the Seder is such a critical microcosm, do you ever consider additions, extra things, extra rituals? I'll throw out one example, the famous fifth cup, right? That the famously that the four cups of wine, according to the uh, Yerushalmi, are meant to be patterned after the four languages of redemption. And of course, if you look at that text, the fifth word, the Heveti, and I will bring you into the land, is left off the list. And some have suggested, well, what do you want from the rabbis of the diaspora, that they have to find a new model? But here we are. And I believe, Rabbi Reifen, you yourself will not be in Bnei Brak or Lod, but not that far, actually, in Yad Bin Yamin, telling this story as a Jew who made Aliyah, who, although your roots are on the east coast of America, you have now planted them in the land of Israel, you and many others. And some would say you should drink the fifth cup, that the fifth cup should no longer be about Eliyahu coming in the future, but maybe something has happened now. I just want to hear your thoughts. So I don't have actual thoughts about the fifth cup, but if we think about adding rituals to the Seder or changing things about the Seder, that's happened throughout Jewish history. If you look at different Jewish communities, traditions in the Seder, those reflect centuries, if not millennia, of evolution, and Jewish communities have always felt free to add elements to the Seder that then become deeply embedded in the way those communities practice the holiday of Pesach. What should we do nowadays? Anything you want to change in the Reifman home? We have our own for this year. We have our own rituals. I think it's become pretty popular these days to do a kind of performance of the 10 plagues to make them a little more real. And the kids always get into it. The practices that we do are really, I think, very personal, maybe even so big as a whole community taking on new practice. What we did a couple of years ago when we first moved to Yad Bin Yamin, right after we made Aliyah, People tried, I think one or two years, we actually succeeded in coordinating all of our sedarim to get to Halal at the same time. And then we would try to reincarnate a practice that's mentioned in rabbinic sources that everybody in Jerusalem would go up onto their rooftops and sing Halal together. So that was tricky because nobody said it moves at exactly the same pace. But uh, there's an example of a new ritual that we you tried know, to revive. Striking. We did that too in my community. I think it started during COVID. Because no one could have guests. That's right. Nobody could and, have guests uh, and you wanted to go outside and feel where, sense of Wherever community. you were in your Seder, we were going to come out and sing paragraphs of Hallel as a community. And it was striking. It was beautiful. And then it morphed into we would also dance and do various things. I think that's a lovely example of what's made possible by living in Israel with all of your Jewish neighbors celebrating a Seder together. The other thought I had, and tell me if this is crazy— is the barbecue on Yoma Atzma'ut. The great heading out of our homes, grill in hand, seasoned meats in our, uh, what do you call them? What do you call those uh, things that keep foods cold? Whatever they're called. And we grill as a nation. Yeah, so I'm going to punt on that one because my two goals for Yoma Atzma'ut are A, to have barbecue and B, to do it not somewhere that's going to require driving anywhere. I see. But um, still, isn't couldn't you somehow imagine as an impulse that we're bringing back some kind of communal, I don't know, sacrifice altogether around Yom Atzmaut? Fascinating. A fascinating idea. But all I'll say about that is, given the traffic that we have in Yom Hatzmaut, that's the one aspect of Pesach that I'm maybe not looking forward to. All the traffic rebuilt. going to Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah I yeah. understand. So if you had to sum up for yourself, right, 
the takeaway for Pesach beyond the obsessive cleaning, beyond the, the obsessive measuring of my amounts of matzah or lettuce leaves from my maror, beyond all of that, beyond the fighting that's going to happen between family members, what do you see is so significant here in terms of what happened and what we're holding on to? What we're holding on to is a really central practice, a ritual, and a ritual in every sense of the word, a ritual that is ordered and regulated and standardized in a way that can feel, and I think we all feel this when we're cleaning for Pesach, fairly restrictive in some ways. The ritual is what enables the story to remain grounded. It makes it literally a part of who we are when we eat the foods that represent the story. And the story is what keeps it alive. The story is what prevents it from becoming drier than the matzah that most of us will eat. The story is that which allows us to continue to infuse it with new meanings, but really one without the other is insufficient. And that for me is really the message of Pesach. But even above that, I think something that you said that for me is really important, the fact that the Jewish people or the rabbis, figured out how to keep going, how to take a holiday that was literally built around a sacrifice, a korban at the temple, and succeed to such a degree that I'm willing to bet most people aren't even aware of its absence. Of how cataclysmic that shift was, and speaks to the power of Judaism and the leaders of the Jewish community at that time to take tradition and retool it in a way that was at once true and honest with the tradition and the untime, and at the same time really quite radical and uh, maybe even subversive. Well, after talking to you, I'm actually looking forward to Pesach. I don't know how long that feeling will last. It might last only for eight or nine minutes, but I'm going to take it. I'm going to go with it. Thank you very, very much for joining me and educating me and all the people who have been listening. I guess I do want to wish all of our listeners, whenever you're listening to this, to have a happy, meaningful, wonderful Pesach for you, your families, and your communities. And thank you very much, Daniel, for joining me. And thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.